This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. When we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify, too, what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, It it was an interesting find. I I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is uh, the word priority – is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority, we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to, okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities, And we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live. What would eventually – what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now, let's let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority really? What's going to be the key that – that report to your boss, you got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. Two weeks of your life, what is the number one priority for you? What is the, what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? Because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention – 
even higher, but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential, right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. We just, our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, And, you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually – because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are What is your top priority, singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority your number one thing. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Whether it's the fear of failure or fear of success or fear of not being good enough, fear of not adding up, fear is driving a lot of our lives. And in the end, um, I, I really, I think that it's not, it's not our best self, right? I mean, our highest self is not a fearful you know, fret, fretful person, our highest self, our essence, the greatest part of who we are is, uh, is not this fearful little being. And so I think one of the problems is it's a, like our good doctor was Theo was telling us before that it's really just, it's a construct. It's, it's, it's one thing to be fearful of, you know, an animal that's going to harm you. But that makes sense, kind of on a visceral, physiological level, a biological level, you need to survive. But a lot of us are now misconstruing that chemistry, those feelings, and actually inventing problems for ourselves. Uh, I've heard people discuss the fact that we're, we're, humans are one of the only animals that experience chronic anxiety and fear. <laughs> we're the only ones that are chronically stressed. And a lot of us are so stressed about things that aren't even real. It's about possible things. Like, what if I can't get a job? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we spend so much time focused on our future or so much time not getting over our past. 
and instead we just never stay present in the now. And I, I honestly think it's a trap. It is a trap that actually is designed to keep us from progressing and being and offering the best thing we can bring to this world. Because if I'm obsessed about what has to happen tonight in my meeting at 5 o'clock or whatever, then um, I am not here right now. And when I'm not here right now, I suffer and you suffer. And no wonder we would stress. You should stress if you're not in the now. I really think your biology is saying, yeah, man, you really ought to focus on the now, dude. Because if you don't, you're going to be eaten by a dinosaur or whatever. You're going to get killed. So we sit, we struggle, we obsess, and then we make up a lot of stories. And we actually use the stories without thinking about them, and we keep using them. Because somebody hurt us in the past, then we have to prevent them, uh, somebody similar to that person. Not really, but I mean, I see this all the time with couples where, because I had a bad history with my um, spouse, then I'm going to try to prevent any history like that going forward. So I will, I will tend to see everybody I date as somebody that could hurt me like my spouse. Imagine how you date somebody if you're always dating out of fear, if you're always dating out of your worst uh, kind of side instead of your healthiest essence. What kind of partner do you find? And what kind of presentation do you give if it's always a presentation out of fear? So how do we overcome this? I think one of the best things that every one of us could focus a little bit more on is let's start staying more present in the now in our lives. Let's actually be where we are at any given point. Let's actually be present. Let's, let's have our head in that conversation. Let's have our head in that game. I have seen uh, over and over with my life and my own clients that I am so afraid of things that could happen, but the reality is if they did, the worst case scenario, think of it, the worst case scenario of what could happen to you or your family, if it happened, you'd actually be, you'd, you'd get through it. You wouldn't be fine, but you'd, you'd get through it. If you lost somebody that you could never imagine losing, and they were taken in a tragic accident, you would get through it. If you talk to anybody that's done that and gone through such a tragedy, they eventually get through it. And they adapt and they cope and they learn and they grow. So And so would you. Now, it doesn't accepting the fact that you could get through it doesn't mean you love someone less and it doesn't mean you can't... Um, that you know that that life's not good, but wouldn't it make much more sense to instead of worrying about what could happen, to actually be present with the person you love today, to love them, to care for them, to spend the time, to deepen that love. And so, one of the rules might simply be: the minute you start to worry about the what ifs or what what if this happened, maybe that's a sign that you need to get in the now. Now's the time to live your life. Now's the time to experience and grow and develop. Now's the time to exercise your integrity. Now, now, now. Not tomorrow, not next year, not someday. Now, let's do something now. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that I have found as I work with clients and we talk about their change is it's easier really to talk about what you don't want to do anymore right, than what you actually do want to become. 
if that makes sense. It's it's easier for us to pick and nitpick on the negative, what we don't like, than it is to actually identify what we do like. And so one of the things I have found in trying to create change is to take more of what's called an appreciative approach to uh, the change. They call it appreciative inquiry. It's a form of consulting that many um, uh, organizational consultants might do as they go in and look at your organizational ills, the things that need to be fixed. And the big key here is to focus on what works. So when you have talked or thought about something, in fact, right now, pick something in your life you'd like to do better. Pick something you'd want to change, whether it's healthier eating habits, you know, being more patient with your children. What, um, what, what we do is we all want some movement, some change in our lives. And so one of the first keys to making that change take place is to identify what works. In the past, what has made it so you could be more patient with your children? In the past, what have you noticed has worked to help you be a more patient parent if that's what you're trying to change? Or if you're trying to change your eating healthy, uh, healthier habits, um, what in the past has made it easier for you to eat healthier? Basic, simple tools to help all of us uh, be a little healthier and and create better results in our own lives. That's what we're trying to do to just be a little bit better today by focusing on the appreciative side, the stuff that's actually working instead of just uh, beating up what doesn't work. This is the Matt Townsend Show. One out of every four or five students will display a significant mental health problem over the course of their lifetime, and those students can be identified early with considerable accuracy if educators are given the right training and tools. Unfortunately, most schools rely on reactive methods, like office uh, discipline referrals, you know, the, the, the bully being sent to the office to figure out which students need behavioral and mental health needs. Should schools stop waiting for red flags and be more proactive in identifying uh, children and um, students that have mental health issues? Well, here to talk about it is uh, our guest, Dr. Nathaniel Vonderems joins us. And uh, Dr. Vonderems is an assistant professor of school psychology at the University of South Florida and the co-chair of the National Association of School Psychologists, Government and Professional Relations work group. Uh, Nathan, thank, or actually we'll call you Nate. Nate, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, a oh boy, couldn't be perf- better timing um, for, for you to be on the show. Uh, so I guess here's our dilemma. We have, we have kids in school situations. 20% of them will have anxiety, depression, or other mental health issues. And, um, you know, those can lead to bigger and bigger problems we're seeing in our communities um, and one of the things that uh, you've written about and, and research and talk about a lot is the fact that there are proactive methods to evaluate students, um, but most schools tend to be fairly reactive to mental health issues. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about a typical school, in schools we do screenings for early reading. We do, we do screenings for health issues such as uh, 
eyesight and, and hearing. And yet we don't often look for mental and behavioral health problems until it's too late. Uh, a typical school will use office disciplinary referrals or then wait till a kid needs to be suspended or, expo- or expelled before we really know that a bigger problem is going on. It's funny, and there's. it seems like the students know, um, with the shooting in Florida, for example, people knew about the, the, the issues with this boy that, that ended up being the shooter. Teachers know, students know, a lot of people know, except um, I guess there's, is there just no formal method to do something about it? Yeah, I think uh, over the last number of years, we really worked to develop tools that are more responsive and accurate in detecting risk. But I do want to make clear that we have no tool that can be 100% accurate in predicting violent or suicidal behavior. And so I think that's an important distinction to draw. Rather, what we're trying to do with universal screening, for example, is to take the temperature before surgery is needed. Mm. And you've invented or, or, or created and then and designed and then tested uh, pre-screening tools. Talk about, talk about how your tool works um, and, and really how how it's really actually becoming fairly popular and more and more schools are now adopting it. Yeah. So, for example, we started with our tool about four and a half years ago now in two rural elementary schools in North Carolina, and it's now been administered over 2 million times across 28 states. So we've seen a tremendous uptick in the growth of the tool. And what it is is it measures the pre-symptomology of mental and behavioral health risk. And so what that means is these early indicators of something of some severe problem behavior that might happen later in, in the year or even in the academic career. So it's a brief tool. It's a 19-item tool that a teacher completes, at least within the elementary school. It takes about 30 seconds to complete per student. Now, later in middle school or in high school, we have student self-report versions. So the student's the one reporting, and I think that's really important, especially when we're talking about internalizing types of issues, depression, anxiety, withdrawal, that are not easily observable by that classroom teacher. And so the tool is quick, it's efficient, and it gives you data that suggests not only if a student's at risk or not, but what kind of risk. And that data is really important to help guide that early intervention to prevent these long-term problems. Mm. It really um, sounds it's, it sounds doable. I was thinking that this would just demand a lot more in resources, and but really it's it's probably a little training on the teacher's part, and then an administration of the teacher's test, uh, and then is every child then retested as they go into, like, middle school? Yeah, so actually with a screening instrument, you want to do that three times per year. And importantly, this gives you that overall snapshot of what's going on in your schools. A lot of times I'll work with teachers, and, and they might say, yeah, fifth grade, yeah, it's a really tough grade this year. And, well, screening helps to give some more data to, to reaffirm those uh, assertions. And for a school, that might mean directing more resources towards fifth grade. Or maybe within a particular classroom, that might be directing resources towards, um, for one of the schools I work with, for example, uh, the eighth grade girls had a a lot of emotional uh, challenges. And so for the school, it helps to redirect and target limited resources to to help those kids earlier. Yeah, I have uh, some teachers in my family. My wife was uh, trained as a teacher, and I I can almost hear the teacher saying, oh, one more thing to do. But a lot of these teachers, they, they already do it. Just out of the goodness of their heart, they're evaluating their kids, and they're trying to help them any way they can. And this, you're just saying this would just be a, a more formal way um, to assess. Yeah, absolutely. And 
the last thing a teacher wants to do is one more assessment, right? Right. And so it has to be a value proposition where we're identifying barriers to learning. And the quicker that we can do that and the way that we can use this to start a conversation to get early intervention quicker, the better that is for both the student and the teacher. Hmm. It seems like once what what we would run into is once we've evaluated and identified certain people that might have some barriers or mental health issues, then we need school psychologists. And isn't there a, a, a pretty major shortage of psychologists? We just don't have the money to put as many psychologists in school as we need. Yeah, for sure. I, I would love to say that we can have the ability to have a school psychologist for, for every school, but Many schools are, are facing those shortages when you see one school psychologist for every 1,500 or even 2,000 students. Yeah. So I think that underscores the importance for a comprehensive um, wraparound services that, that kids need. So bringing in the school psychologist, bringing in the school social worker, school counselor, and having communication amongst mental and behavioral health professionals in the school in terms of how do we meet these kids. But ultimately, we're never going to have enough personnel or money for that one-to-one service for every kid in need. And so that's why it really underscores the importance of screening so that we can put prevention universal programming in place so that we can reduce the, reduce the overall numbers. Yeah, it's, um, it, it really it's, it goes back to that, that constant battle uh, between funding and uh, where we put the money. But then when we have a disaster and a tragedy like we saw with um, – the, the shooting in, in Florida, we, we also start to realize that we've got to have more complex solutions. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Nathaniel Vonderems, who is an assistant professor at the School of Psychology at the University of South Florida, and he's helping us understand that there are assessments, there are ways that we can proactively evaluate and assess a person's mental health um, on a regular basis throughout our school system without it being uh, undue, I guess, an undue pressure or an undue burden on the teachers. Talk about what you've seen as you as you've seen now 26 or so states using your tool. What what kind of uh, what kind of um, impact has it made? What are you seeing? What are some stories coming out of the work you've been doing? Yes, I've been working with some of the biggest school districts in the country, and what we've seen on the ground when I'm out in the school district training teachers how to do this is that they're consistently reporting that they're not relying necessarily on discipline referrals anymore and having to kick kids out of their classroom, but rather when when they're able to do that screening, they're using this data to communicate to their school teams of the type of intervention, the type of help that they need in that particular classroom. Um, I, I spoke earlier about the need for, you know, in one elementary or one middle school, rather, that the eighth-grade girls were having a lot of emotional issues. Well, another early elementary school, we noticed quite a bit of aggressive behavior. And so for that school in particular, it was some social skills training and some anger control and relaxation training. But those decisions wouldn't be possible if we're only, you know, if we're only relying on the, the kids that are out of seat, the kids that are talking out of turn. I can work, walk into any elementary school in the United States and identify those kids within the first 10 seconds. However, it's those kids that have the withdrawal, the social isolation, and the anxiety. Those are the ones that are typically not being served. And so having that more comprehensive snapshot and working with a number of schools 
they've been able to triage their services so much earlier and it leads to greater efficiency uh, with those limited resources. It really is powerful. The, um, the idea that you could really more fine tune the services you're delivering and triage uh, each group. Do you notice that is it does do certain problems tend to become like systemic, like school wide or do, do they tend to stay fairly focused to just certain classrooms or does it go by grade that they would need to do these interventions? Yeah, so I, each, each school, of course, is unique in its own right in the community and population that it serves. Um, however, when, when doing a universal screening, schools oftentimes will look at the data and say, let's say for one of the um, urban schools that I work with, almost 60 to 70% of kids came up at risk. Well, in a typical school, you can't pull out 60% of kids for some kind of uh, external group uh, whether it be relaxation or anger, anger control training, but rather we need to do something at the class level. So how do we support that teacher to make that classroom environment uh, more conducive to learning, to reduce some of the triggers that kids might experience that leads to some of these behavioral problems? And so that's just one example of kind of like how a school might shift that resources to the teacher level rather than maybe some of the individual student level. Whereas other schools are implementing things like social-emotional learning, uh, a second-step curricula, culturally responsive schools, or even trauma-informed practices. And these kinds of decisions are made based upon the nature of the need um, exhibited both within the classroom but across the school as a whole. Mm. Boy, it, it really, to be able to target it uh, would, be such an, would, would be such a help. I, I look at it almost like, you know, it's, it's Sunday dinner, you've got a lot of pots boiling, you've got something in the oven, you've got all these things going on. But you need to kind of know when to turn one up, when to turn one down, when to move one off the burner. It's because these things can be volatile with one class having trouble or entire grades having trouble, urban versus rural issues. It's a pretty big deal. Have you had any pushback um, from people that feel like, uh, you know, that they we eventually put some of these kids on a list They're Now they're listed. They're targeted They're You know, it's like being on the terrorist list in school because you you're you're constantly being seen on that assessment as somebody that that has potential problems. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think another question that I often get is the, the issue around parental consent and kind of how are we using these uh, assessments to guide services? And I think importantly, when we're doing universal screening, we're not diagnosing. Hmm. We're not having a psychologist get out of DSM and, and look up a diagnostic code for a mental health issue. No, rather, if to continue the analogy about taking the temperature, we're getting idea, a quick idea of something that might or might not be going on and what's, what is the nature of that issue. And so importantly, when a school is starting to screen, there has to be some intervention, interventions in place that are available to all students. So these aren't specialized pull-out services or referrals to outside clinicians. Rather, this is a way to guide those decisions in the school setting. Hmm. And so these are observable uh, behaviors that can be uh, identified with the screening instrument. So when we're talking about you know, how to provide those services, it's important to be able to have that conversation with the school team that you must screen to intervene. Yeah. Now, that sounds um, – it sounds so important. I also uh, – again, we're already doing this, right, for learning disabilities, for health issues, for for other, uh, you know, things. We're already screening our kids to screen to intervene and know how to handle it. So 
this doesn't seem like a, a, a bridge too far. This seems like something that everyone could be implementing. What would you suggest to the rest of us, Nate, as parents who, who you know, are, are for this idea, and how would we be able to get our school more involved? Yeah, I think the first conversation that you have with the school is how are they currently addressing um, mental health and behavioral health issues? Um, you know, many schools will have a disciplinary plan in place some schools uh, implement positive behavior interventions and supports, which is a more uh, tiered approach or public health approach to addressing behavioral issues. And then ultimately, you know, where are the gaps within that system, right? If we have uh, universal curriculum in place, well, how do we know if it works? You know, what kind of indicators are, are relative to the effectiveness of a particular programming? So you see, uh, you know, within our reading curriculum, well, we have early reading assessments to give us an idea if the curriculum works and if a student is making adequate progress, well, we need to be doing the same thing for emotional and behavioral health. And so the questions that a parent might ask is, well, how is this school addressing the emotional and behavioral health needs of my students, that all students, I'm a parent myself, that all students need? And so it's important to have that conversation first of, of what are the existing practices and policies uh, that are in place or, or maybe not in place at that school? And then ultimately, how do we make that next step, a more individualized uh, service delivery? And so for many schools, school psychologists, uh, principals, uh, special education leaders, it's then finding tools that are going to meet those needs to help guide those conversations. Schools are, are doing this anyways. You know, universal screening is just one way to help improve that process. I mean, we put so much on teachers today that they're balancing so many things within the classroom. This is just one way to really help improve and, and make that process much more efficient. Absolutely. Nate Vonderems, thank you so much for your insight uh, and just, just giving us all a taste of what this universal screening would look like with our kids. Why not? Why wouldn't we do what we can to, to make our teaching more effective, more targeted, to have this triage method um, for mental health for our kids it seems really like a no-brainer that we can we can find out earlier how to intervene, how to help, and how to lift our kids to a higher level. Again, Dr. Nathan Vonderems is a, an assistant professor at the school at at the University of South Florida, and uh, doing what he can to take on the battle, mental health in our schools. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. Do a little coach's corner with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! You know, uh, as, we, as we talk about anything on the show, we, we, uh, our goal is to influence you, right? To, to hopefully give you some ideas, some tools, some real-life solutions. And part of the coach's corner, our goal is to give you some some takeaway, something you can go and do. As we were talking with, should we you know wait for red flags to address student mental health issues? Should we wait till there's a shooting? Should we wait till we can all react? Um, no, right? So one of the ideas I wanted to talk about in the coach's corner was the idea of proactive versus reactive and um, and reactivity. And uh, the the problem is it's there's just so much going on. We don't pay attention to everything. We, we can't feasibly pay attention to everything. 
Except, again, once we have a shooting or we have an event that we can all react to, then we start really mobilizing all of the forces. And, uh, you know, it turns into discussions of gun legislation. It turns into, um, you know, movements. The kids get out of school to go fight uh, the issue. One of the solutions that uh, our last guest, Nate, brought to us is the fact that there are ways to understand very quickly the mental health needs of students and um, to assess those needs, to see if they have the potential of, of having um, some problems coming up simply because of what's going on in their lifestyle, in their home, in their in their are they treated pro- properly and appropriately? Do they tend to be bullied? Other issues that can can come up in these evaluations, and the the idea that we we don't have time for it, or we have other rights that would forbid us from a teacher doing such a quick triage. Remember, they're already doing it. They're already making these assessments. They're already questioning it as a parent or as a teacher who's trying to do the best they can with their students anyway, and. It's just more additive. But the idea that we could proactively start impacting the mental health issues and needs of our kids before they turn into full-fledged fights and arguments and, you know, a beatdown on the playground would be really valuable, wouldn't it? And wouldn't that actually help our psychologists in schools also know how to to triage and, and who to work with? And couldn't we take certain groups of these kids and actually teach them other healthy, meaningful ways to manage anxiety and uh, meaningful ways to, to evaluate their depression and and have other assessments or have other people, other resources from the community come in. It's, it's powerful. Anytime you can do it proactively. Now, one of the things that I learned um, when I was working with uh, Franklin Covey and, and Stephen Covey from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is the idea of the definition of proactive versus reactive. Proactivity means you make decisions based on your values and your principles. Reactivity means you make the decisions based on mood, situation, or circumstance. And wouldn't it be powerful if we had some time to be more proactive in the making of our choices of our in our educational system, in the protection of our kids, instead of constantly doing it reactively out of our mood, our situation, or that circumstance? The minute we are always following um, the lead of a problem, uh, it seems like we're already behind the gun, literally, right? We're already behind the problem. And then it becomes more of a reactive decision, and then your reaction drives my reaction, and it becomes a a reactive, chaotic environment versus choosing ahead of time. What do we know causes some of these issues with uh, violence in our schools? We know mental health is one of the issues, right? We know that there's a parenting side to this. We know that many, the majority, minus one of the school shootings recently, were fatherless children. Their fathers weren't around. Uh, that would probably be an indicator, I'm betting, on one, of the, on one of the assessments that our last guest was talking about. We know that uh, access to weapons or guns is another issue. We know that um, just pressure from the community and schools. We know bullying is another issue. So there is a lot. We can't just expect teachers to do everything that we can be more proactive as parents in setting up these opportunities 
And I'm telling you, proactive is is the way, especially when we now know that there's teachers, there's everybody knows that that there are people that are desperately in need of help. So we also need some laws that make it a little easier to uh, to help those people that don't even know they need it. Now, speaking of proactivity, this is why I wanted to jump on that idea. Uh, there is a great example of proactivity who is a, from a gas station clerk, listen to this, that tracks down a customer who lost a lottery ticket. Now, after a man accidentally dropped a lottery ticket that was worth $1 million, he won. It was worth $1 million in a Salina, Kansas gas station. The employee ensured that the winning ticket made it back to the right guy. The ticket was actually purchased in Lincoln, Kansas. But while stopped at a Salina gas station, the winner's brother held the ticket in his hand. Then he dropped it. After spotting it, when the brothers were gone, employees picked up the ticket, scanned it, discovering it was worth $1 million. It wasn't signed, though, and so any one of the employees could have claimed it as their own. But they waited to see if the men would return, and when they came back a few hours later, the ticket was turned over to the rightful owner. The winner asked to stay anonymous, and the Kansas Lottery has not revealed the name of the Salina gas station where the ticket was lost. It's just nice to know where you still see Good Samaritans out there, right? So proactivity, looking for the guy, tracking down the guy, doing what you can to live according to your value system. There are people out there doing it. There are people trying it. Our teachers are trying it. Our police officers are trying it. And um, we all need to be trying it. So ask yourself, where do you need a little more proactivity in your life? Where do you need to to actually proactively start working on something instead of constantly reacting to it the rest of your days? And hopefully you can just make a little progress on it. You don't need to fix the issue perfectly, but you can find one little solution to start uh, improving it today. We are going to uh, continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. We're going to be revisiting an interview about getting past self-pity. How do you get over, you know, your pity party? This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Amy Morin is a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, college psychology instructor, and internationally recognized expert on mental strength. And she says that mentally strong people refuse to allow self-pity to sabotage their goals. Instead, they use life's inevitable hardships as a way to grow stronger and become better. She joined us a while back on the show and shared some tips with us about how to avoid the trap of self-pity. I began the interview by asking, what is wrong with having a little self-pity party? That's just it. I think, you know, a lot of times we like to indulge ourselves in a pity party, but it, it holds us back. The more you spend time you spend hosting your pity party, the less time <laughs> you spend fixing your problem. And even when you can't fix the problem, you can at least change your attitude or go out and make your life a little bit better. That's true. I mean, I guess it's just what are you going to spend your time on, huh? Just right. wallowing or, you know, moving on. Exactly. And when you wallow, it, it doesn't do you, you or anybody else around you any good, and it doesn't improve your circumstance. That's a, it's really a, and especially because you can be justified to have a pity party. I mean, well, yeah, so-and-so was just, uh, you know, lost their job and I haven't been able to work because of my health. You could fall into that pity party and everyone would agree you should feel sad 
except it doesn't change your situation. It just keeps you feeling sad. Right. And I think that's an important distinction. It's always interesting to me when I talk about this subject is people sort of have this line that they draw about when it becomes acceptable to to throw a pity party. So yeah. for some people it is, you know, when you're um, stuck in financial problems and, and it's not your fault. Well, then, yes, then you can host a pity party. <laughs> but in reality, you know, that there's a big difference. Of course, you're going to be sad when bad things happen in life, but there's a big difference between feeling sad and wallowing in self-pity. Wallowing in self-pity is what keeps you stuck rather than just being sad where when you have these normal emotions as far as feeling sad, feeling hurt, feeling angry, whatever it might be, you can still face those emotions and move forward. But wallowing is really about staying stuck. Isn't that funny? And, and again, you the minute you're really good at recognizing and, and actually enjoying how jacked up your life is, and, and it's it's a good thing for you, I, you're, you're probably totally upside down, aren't you? You're just you're you're, you're paddling the wrong way. Yes, absolutely. It's sad. It's so sad. But we do it, and I see it all the time. I mean, I, you know, there's people that just they love telling you the sad story, the sob story. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't change anything. You say that there's nine ways that mentally strong people prevent self pity from kind of taking over their world. Uh, talk to us. One of the first ones you mentioned is. Mentally strong people face their feelings. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, you know, it's oddly, self-pity is often a way to avoid confronting your feelings. So somebody who feels sorry for themselves doesn't really want to go straight through this hurt and anger and sadness. So sort of to like skirt around the issue, they're like, oh, I just won't leave the house for four days because I don't want to go out and see people. Or or rather than working on the on the problem, they want to call everybody they know to invite them to their pity party by saying, gosh, can you believe this happened to me? <laughs> And and it's really a way to sort of get around your emotions and rather than facing them head on. Sometimes you just have to say, yeah, this is sad and allow yourself to, to feel that or allow yourself to go through grief head on. And, and that's uncomfortable and nobody likes to do that, but it's better than sitting around thinking about, you know, how horrible your life is and, and sort of magnifying all of your misfortunes. Well, and you, because it is a downward spiral like you talk about, but you also then suggest healthy people, you know, mentally stronger people, um, they recognize the warning signs of the downward spiral they're in. They actually see it real time. Yeah, there's a big link, obviously, between how we feel, what we think about, and how we behave. And those three things are all intertwined. So when you start thinking, you know, that my life shouldn't shouldn't be like this or I shouldn't have to deal with these problems it causes you to feel bad. And the worse you feel, the less likely you are to get up and get active and, and work towards a solution. So true. I mean, it, it's it's self-awareness. A lot of this is just recognizing what's going on, but also, I guess, being able to question how you're seeing the problem too, huh? Yeah, because, you know, when we're stuck in self-pity, we exaggerate things. And we think, you know, nobody else ever has to deal with problems as big as mine, or you start to think, you know, my my life is worse than everyone else's. Well, those things aren't true. <laughs> and sometimes to really get a hold of yourself, you have to stop and think, well, is my life really that bad? Chances are, maybe you've gone through some rough times, but gee, compare yourself to people on the other side of the earth, and pretty quickly you can see that your yeah. life's not that bad. <laughs> I mean, even in the worst case scenario, I see it with my clients um, like a divorce, they're going through a divorce. They found out their partner's been cheating on them and they're going through a divorce. Um, okay, okay, we'll feel that. That's good. Go feel it. Go through your emotion. Go through the grieving process. But 
there comes a point where, like, I look at, I had a, a, a recently, I had a client that's, she's still going to, she's still got an education. She has uh, incredible talents and gifts. She already, she's going, she's set up basically for life financially. And I sit there and compare her to other clients and I think, oh, wow, you have no idea. I mean, imagine if you were in this situation losing everything and having no money. And yet you can't, I can't convince someone of that. They, that's why they need to be mentally strong, right? Because I can't just sit there and try to talk them into being healthy. Right. Often we compare ourselves to people who are better off. We look around and think, you know, all these other people, their lives are so much easier. Well, just look the other direction and you'll see that there's plenty of people who have way tougher circumstances than you do. So when we hear people complain about, you know, I'm so busy and I've got 12 loads of laundry to do and then I have to go grocery shopping. Well, just think about that statement alone. You have to do your loads of laundry. Well, at least you have running water. Yeah. (laughs) Or you have to go grocery shopping. You get to go to the store and buy food, and you have money, you know? Yeah, no, totally. It's really not the end of the world. Well, yeah, but, yeah, well, you just, yeah, you don't understand. You're like, right. okay, right. It, and, again, that's why it's so powerful because I can't – this has to be something we have to choose to do to be able to turn a negative thought – you call it into a behavioral experiment. What do you mean by that? Well, because, you know, sometimes we'll we'll think those things like, you know, I, I can't ever go out and get a new job. Nobody will ever hire me. Well, you won't know until you try. But sometimes self-pity keeps us just sitting on the couch thinking nothing good will ever happen. Well, and then that can affect your behavior. But unless you go out there and challenge some of those negative thoughts, you'll never know. And so I run into a lot of people in my therapy office as well who will say, well, you know, I could never get a new job or I could never go out and get married again because I'll never meet anybody. Well, no, you won't meet anybody if you're sitting on your couch or no, nobody's uh, company's not going to call you and offer you a job when you, you haven't even gone out and applied. You have yeah. to go out and, and do those things to make it happen. <laughs> it's so true. I was sitting in an activity or a speech I was about to give in front of, I don't know, like a thousand um, singles. And a woman came up to me that I had met before uh, and she said, oh. Look out there, Matt. Look at that group. And I'm like, yeah. And she says, they're pitiful. There's not one person in that group that is marriageable. Not one person in that group that's marriageable. And I'm and I'm sitting here trying to go find a husband in that group. And I I look I look, I was like, what are you saying? And I said, I go, you know what is so amazing? Um, you are the you're the second person to tell me that. And the other was a man that was looking right at your group of friends and said, look at that group. And she's like, really? And I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yep. It's all in our head. There's nobody. Right. There's nobody good enough to marry. And every, if everybody in the room is thinking that, then I guess you're right. There is nobody in that right. group to marry. But it's it's all about the mental, isn't it? It's about the psychological. But I love that you turn it into an activity, a behavior. Take your negative yeah. perception and go do something about it. Turn it into an act. Right, because I find that people who feel sorry for themselves, they really end up living this sort of really pitiful life after a while. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that people will say, you know, well, I don't have any friends and nobody likes me. Well, when's the last time you went out and did something nice for somebody or the last time you went to a party and spoke to people rather than just sat in a corner and sulked? Or what steps can you take to to make your life a little bit better? That is uh, the key, right? Again, Amy Morin, who is a clinical psychologist, all of us could fall into a pity party. I mean, Jeff and I, we fall into pity parties about every five minutes. Oh, yeah. 
For sure. In fact, on my way back into the studio, I was just thinking, oh, I'm so tired. I'm never going to get any sleep. Yeah. No, you actually, you weren't thinking that. You said that. Yeah. Right when you walked in, you said that. I, I didn't know I said that out loud. Oh, no. That's, it was how, out, it was that's how tired I am. Well, and that's also how pitiful that is. <laughs> so get over your pity party, right? Not you, Jeff. So I can keep eating this ice cream then? Yeah. Okay. No. No, you can't. What? It's going to go right to your hips. Um, so we've all got it. It's easy. It's easy to just start complaining. It's easy to play the martyr. It's easy to get into the pity party. But in the end, you got to do something about it, right? So make a change. Make a change. Change your life. Change your schedule. Change your diet. Change your something. Or just keep being the victim of life. Don't try to get attention by being more pitiful than everyone else. Or you're going to start to create problems for yourself. Anyway, just a little advice from the Matt Townsend Show. Again, we're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll have more fun next hour. This is uh, our goal to make your life better. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and, and believe strongly in your family that you know, one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family. And there's a lot of pressure to, to how do you make ends meet when, like we heard earlier, it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet. Um, so at some point, we have to we have to really co-parent. We have to learn to, to be together as parents um, on our family issues. I see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up. And we fight about things, we fight about chores, and we fight about discipline, and we fight about everything, right? So at some point, we need to, we need to figure out how to, how to work better together. And I wanted to give you some ideas um, that, uh, that, that might help as we, as we go through life. One idea that I think is super important is if, if it's not working in your family, if you don't feel like you're working really well together – um, as a as a partnership, one of my I, I mean, a lot of times we would just blame one partner. You know, he's not helping out, she's not helping out. But one of the things that I teach, and it's, it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes, because just symbolically, I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, the the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. Okay, so if a system is really one sided then um, it, there may be uh, – the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one-sided way. And an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of of quality – for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you, or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish, how you uh, wash something. Um, is it just – have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, and so – but think about that because – 
almost inevitably when I see somebody who has nobody helping around the house, many times I see that same person being a perfectionist. And nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't they they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it, um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner to not be as involved in the parenting? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? What did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is nif- different now than the, how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's, she might you know, have the baby on her hip more, so she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so is there a way that we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most, you know, energy, anxiety, frustration issue about something really, I think, should be the owner of it. If, if, If you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then you probably ought to own it so that you can, you know, go manage it the way you want to manage it. But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it, and um, and you you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than than communicating. <laughs> And making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions, some things we ought to be discussing is what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you, do you want to play? Do you, do you want to just – We I think a lot of us just default to you know typical, kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff. Mom does the inside stuff. But, I mean, you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what do we? What roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from 1 to 10. Rank how well you're both doing as the, the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co-parenting skills. If, if we want to be better co-parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh, in a way that um, we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need, to, we don't need more excuses. We don't need more uh, reasons to blame somebody. What we need is we need to put the co in it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's important as a, as a couple, as a partnership, to find some time with each other. And so I've decided... I'm going to put together some time savers, ways that you as a couple could actually find more time to be together. Again, you're only given so much time anyway, right? So many minutes a day, so much time. And if you're not able to find time for each other, it might be simply because you're misinterpreting or misunderstanding what time you could be using. Uh, One of my first rules, and for years I used to teach, you know, maybe a great tool is divide and conquer. 
you go one way, you take the kids one way, have your wife go another way. We would divide up, but then we'd be able to quickly get through all of our tasks and then spend time together at the end of the day. Well, I've decided that was some bad advice, and I'm sorry I ever thought of it, because what I have now come to understand is Maybe what we ought to do is instead of dividing and conquering, what if we tried to unite and conquer? If our goal is to have time with each other, then let's quit Let's quit dividing in order to then eventually sometime down the road or later in the day be able to have time together. Why don't we actually spend more time today going and doing our doing our chores, doing our activities, doing our our to-do list together? What if we could actually go run errands together as a couple? And maybe go grocery shopping and either do it together side by side or actually um, break off and have one of us run and get, you know, the bread and one go get the milk and we meet back. And But let's do it together. And then we get in the car and we can talk. And we use the time together throughout the day. Sure, it might take you a little bit more time, but you would also finally have the time together instead of just hoping that uh, somehow you're going to find time at the end of a day. Another little uh, tool I might suggest is that you use some productivity apps. Um, my wife now is my – she's my executive assistant. She's basically my office manager, in fact. And uh, ever since she's been working for me, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been so much better for our relationship. We're on the same page. She, we now are using the same apps with each other. And what I mean by that is she uses Google Calendar. I use Google Calendar. We can combine our lists. We can actually get our children's calendars uh, and our teenagers to put their calendars together, and they become part of our calendar. We have shared to-do lists. We have shared note pages. We have shared camera streams. So every picture she takes, I can see it. I can get access to it. We have, uh, you know, we can access each other's Amazon wish list if we want. There's just a lot of great technology out there that we can use to partner better and and to be together. So use the apps that you've got out there and, and, and take advantage of those. Another simple rule I use is to watch out for your transition times, I call them. Transition time are those moments between one activity and another. When you arrive home from work, let's say, that is what I call a transition moment. And there is time and something magical in that moment that you could leverage in your marriage. Um, After dinner, before we start cleaning up the dinner, there is a magical moment there of transition where if you would just hang on five or 10 more minutes, you might be able to have a great conversation there. When you go to bed, uh, that's a transition time, going, you know, from whatever, watching a show to going to bed. That time of transition is a wonderful moment where you might be able to pick up some time to spend uh, and actually connect with your spouse. So look through your day and try to identify these moments of transition and see if you can stretch more time out of those. Another little basic uh, idea I give is to share your social media accounts. We spend so much time trying to get everything posted to all of our social media to keep up with everybody else. But what if we actually shared the account together with our spouse and we had a couple's account and we could both post to it. We could both post interesting parts of our day. It's a great, great way to connect with each other. So we're, we're doing that. But it also might give us some more time because we don't have to both do it individually. Now it's something that we can see together, do together, share together. We could even then go through our page together and see what all of our friends are doing. And it might actually bring us together. And then last but not least, let's start learning that we've got to stop. It's not just about saying no to everyone else. 
We have to say yes to the marriage. If you want a healthy marriage where we have time together, you got to say yes. You got to make time for it and space for it. And really, we've got to figure out a way to not just have time, but make the time valuable. Um, And so that might be a great place to disconnect from technologies and just actually have some more time to talk. But it's not enough to just say no to everything else. At some point, you also have to say yes to the marriage. This is The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life. if I told you that you get more done when you work less? Would you believe me? Well, our next guest uh, has, uh, has done a lot of research on it. Dr. Alex Pang, who's the author of many books, including the bestseller Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, and a new article that he published, uh, The Most Successful People Make Room for Rest. And he's here today to talk with us about um, how overworking ourselves to meet deadlines, uh, it wears us out, and it actually doesn't necessarily mean we're more likely to, to meet the deadlines. Dr. Alex Pang, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. So how does resting, taking a break, getting, taking a rest, actually help us get more done? Well, um, <clears throat> it's useful in a couple ways. I mean, it's sort of, first of all, there is the simple physical fact that you know, or of minds need rest just in the same way that bodies need food. And I think that, or if, uh, that trying, to, or if, uh, trying to push ourselves past the point where we're able to operate effectively actually turns out to be counterproductive. The second thing is that when you look at the lives of really creative people, you know, artists or Nobel Prize winners or famous, you know, famous novelists, one of the striking things you find is that they actually often labor far fewer hours than you would think you would need in order to write great expectations or make mm. great discoveries. But what they do is they work very intensively for periods of you know, several hours, maybe four or five hours, and then they also then rest in very consistent kinds of ways, ways that it turns out help them be more creative, to see new insights, to turn over ideas, so that the next time they go back to work, um, they've got sort of more interesting ideas to kind of pick up on and to and to push forward. Oh, that's that's great news <laughs> because I've always th- <laughs> I've always thought that's kind of how I work. Um, it, it's almost more in fits than it is, you know, this constant stream of of work. But part of it too, I think, is just we need to think, don't we? We need time to think. Absolutely, and. You know, I think one of the things that we often underestimate is how valuable those periods where we're apparently doing nothing, where we've worked hard, we've turned over a problem, um, and we've maybe hit a wall. And, you know, taking a, taking a period and, let's say, going for a walk or sort of doing something else that's, uh, that is diverting and low intensity can give our subconscious minds, our kind of creative minds, a chance to turn over those problems, to examine them maybe from a new angle, and to come up with an, you know, to come up with an answer that would, you know, that often eludes 
our conscious effort. It's a kind of, you know, more productive version of that experience that we all have of trying to remember, you know, who was the name of that actor who was in that movie and yeah. that TV show, right? And you can't remember it. Right. And then a few minutes later, when you're in the car or doing something else, the name <laughs> pops into your head. Owen Wilson! We just exactly. shouted out. You know, and, yeah. you know, it turns out that that same set of cognitive processes is what's behind or of, you know, discoveries like um, you know, sort of Newton's, Newton's recognition that, you know, sort of mechanical forces and gravity actually operate in the same way. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that kind of time turns out to be um, time that we can spend very, very well, very Do, well. Does it matter what your job is? Um, uh, it seems like, you know, if you're, if you're a creative type, this actually makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. But is it, is it the same if you're a mechanic? Actually, yes, because, um, you know, work, there's a, there, are, there are lots of kinds of work that we think of as being less creative, but actually still require an awful lot of creativity. Right. Um, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's actually a wonderful book called, Soul, called Shop Craft about sort of uh, about motorcycle repair, where they mm. talk about right. I see. Yeah, you know, sort of. There's an incredibly that's incredibly complicated stuff, and we often underestimate just how creative even what look like relatively simple tasks uh, or of, uh, turn out to be. And so I think that this is something that recognizing the value of rest is something that is good for. Uh, order for everybody. But even if you're in a field where, you know, where the main challenge is simply, um, you know, maintaining like a high level of intensity through the course of a day, rest is still very valuable for restoring the energy, mental and physical, that you spend during work and making it possible for you to, you know, come back the next day and to do the kind of job that you want to do. Yeah. You, um, you made a great argument in your your article uh, th- about um, uh, the one that we just recently talked about. The most successful people make room for rest. Mm-hmm. It, it, in there, you talk about the fact that so many business executives, so many historic, uh, you know, iconic business leaders, even you know, from Teddy Roosevelt as a president to Carnegie, to all of, to Forbes, to all of these other people, they made it a, a major point to make sure that they were getting out to nature and actually resting. Right. You know, and I think there was, you know, they reflected this older ideal that recognized that, you know, that rest was important, that rest was a kind of reward for hard work, you know, that you didn't need to feel guilty about so long as you did the work first. Um, you know, but also that rest had value, you know, that it was in those periods that you, you gave yourself an opportunity not just to think about, you know, new ideas for your business or to solve problems, but also to reflect on the quality of your life, you know, to make sure that you, you know, or have had a perspective on what really mattered and what really mattered for you to do next. So, you know, I think that the, you know, and the fact that they were able to do this and have good lives and be fabulously successful Mm. um, should, you know, serve as a uh, sort of uh, serves serves as a great reminder for us that, you know, that uh, that constant overwork and an assumption that we need to, you know, dissolve the boundaries between, you know, work and life um, isn't necessarily Sort of the you know the the kind of 
um, magic road or the only road to success. Do you? I know you've done a lot of uh, also work in just what happens to the physiology in the brain and everything. Mm-hmm. What is going on while we're resting that's not happening while we're working? Right. Well, um, you know, when you kind of relax your mind and seem to kind of zone out, you think that your brain is kind of shutting off. But it turns out that what happens is that it's every bit as busy as it is when you are, you know, or of dealing with traffic or, or you know, or, or trying to solve math problems. It's just different parts of the brain are active. And this is what um, neuroscientists call the default mode network. And one of the characteristics of the default mode network is that it seems to connect together parts of the brain that are used when we are engaged in creative activity. And so when you let the mind just do its own thing, it tends to kind of want to wander back to problems that we've been working on. And so this, it turns out, is, uh, sort of, is the mechanism that underlies that uh, sort of the phenomenon of having, you know, aha moments or unexpected insights. And that's why for creative people, taking the time, especially after you've been working hard on a problem, to just let your mind relax for a few minutes and sort of to, you know, to, gi- to give your subconscious a chance to switch on the default mode network and to let it to do its thing turns out to be actually um, a, sort of a, a useful and, if you practice it, reliable way of getting insights and solving problems. Oh, yeah. It, where I do it every day where I, I, I actually, though, you know, introduce the problem or like I need to write an article and I'll, I will introduce the idea to my brain and then I, I, I just research some stuff, but I let my subconscious or whatever it is work it. And, exactly. it, and it works it. And then when I go sit down to write it, I'm, there, I'm ready. Right. You know, this is – and, you know, it's, it often sounds something that's kind of, you know, mis, uh, sort of mysterious or mystical. Yeah. But actually, you know, lots of writers w- have, this pr- have this practice of stopping for the day in mid-sentence because they find that the next morning when they start up – um, it's, e- it's, you know, it's easier, first of all, to complete a sentence than it is to you know, face the existential terror of a <laughs> blank page. Yeah. But psychologists have also found that if you know that you're going to be coming back to a problem later and, trying to, uh, and working on it, your subconscious actually will continue processing it even as you go off and do other things. And that's a practice that it turns out you can learn and you can get better at. Just that, you know, it's, it's no different from, you know, learning to drive or learning, you know, learning another language. It's just, you know, sort of, it's a lot of repetition and practice, but you do actually get better at that. Mm. You, you have a term you call deep play. Mm-hmm. What, what is that and how does that work into all of this? Well, it turns out that, um, some, uh, that lots of really you know, ambitious, competitive people have time-consuming, expensive, sometimes dangerous hobbies. You know, things like mountain climbing yeah. or you know, solo, you know, sort of, um, solo sailing. And so why is it that people who otherwise are very you know, conscious of their time invest in these things? What do they get out of it? And it turns out that for them... Um, these sort of these kinds of serious hobbies, what I sort of what I call in the book deep play, are valuable because 
they offer many of the same sort of psychological rewards as their work when it's going really well um, in a very different kind of context, often you know, physically much more demanding, um, and in a very different kind of time scale. So scientists, for example, talk about rock climbing as being like science because you've got this, you know, you've got this big problem. You know, get to the top of the get to the top of the rock that you break down into a lot of little parts. You attack them one by one. It requires a lot of concentration. But unlike experiments, where you're never 100% sure that you're going to you know you're going to get the answer you think is right, mm. at the end of the climb, you've either made it to the top or you haven't. And that turns out to be a really rewarding thing for people who are working in very complex kinds of jobs, who are doing things that are very cognitively demanding. And I think that the other, you know, the other reason it's valuable is that um, you know, very often people who are really devoted to their work or who are really ambitious need something that is just as engaging as their work to get them out of the office, right? Yeah. Sort of to, you know, to, to give, uh, in order to give yourself permission to go off and do something else, you need something that kind of feels as rewarding as, you know, sort of as your job. And so deep play serves that purpose in a way that um, often more casual kinds of, uh, kinds of hobbies or lower intensity kinds of leisure um, turn out not to. Hmm. It's so – it really is. It's fascinating to see kind of some of this coming together. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Alex Pang, who is the founder of The Restful Company and a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He's also the author of two books, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, and The Distraction Addiction. Um, Dr. Pang, talk to us about – it sounds like the rest – it's interesting because rest seems almost the opposite of – exercise, except um, really it almost seems like physical exercise is part of the component of rest. Yeah, you know, one of the things that surprised me most when I was writing the book was how many of the people I talk about, how many of the people who, are, uh, who, who practice, uh, practice these kinds of rest are actually really serious athletes. And partly that reflects the fact that, you know, that, uh, that um, cognitive work is actually physically very challenging. You know, your brain, when it's operating at full intensity, is, you know, is consuming energy like a marathon runner, and sort of literally. And so being in better shape means that you can, you know, you can, you can provide food and oxygen to your, sort of, to your brain in the quantities that it needs. But it also turns out that the best kinds of rest, the ones that are most mentally restorative and, or physical, and physically restorative are actually active rather than passive. You know, we often mm. think of rest as sitting on a couch with a remote in one hand and, you know, a bag of snacks in the other. And that has its place, but it's, but it's more often the case that, you know, the way to get over a stressful day at work or to, you know, prepare for a challenging week is not to, you know, just kick back, but actually, you know, to go for a run, to go to the gym, to do something that is going to be, um, you know, uh, that's uh, physically challenging, but also maybe psychologically engaging as well, that takes your mind off work, but also uh, gives you the energy that you need to face the next day. Yeah. 
It's yeah, it's counterintuitive, but yet it would induce this state of well-being. Yeah. Talk about the um, you know as as we're trying to figure this out in our own lives. And, you know, we're still trying to maybe push back on our our bosses or our business structure that that still buy into the old model that it's not as beneficial for people to rest. What would you say we should do um, just as individuals to, to start? Where do we begin to get more rest in our lives? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is, you know, is take rest seriously. You know, recognize that it actually has value and it's something worth investing in. So, you know, first off, don't feel guilty about it, but also don't assume that you're going to be able to rest once you've gotten everything done, because, everything else done. Because, you know, these days we're never, you know, we never get to the bottom of our to-do lists. Um, I mean, I think that the, that, uh, that, uh, the next thing is that if you're in work that is, you know, that is cognitively challenging or sort of highly creative, that figuring out that this pattern of alternating periods of intensive work and dedicated deliberate rest is a really valuable thing. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to get more done over the course of a day if you work that way than if you, you know, try and maintain like a steady pace for you know, eight or nine hours. For people who are in jobs that, where the big challenge is maintaining you know, a, maintaining a level of focus and intensity over the course of a day or that have more kind of psychological challenges to them. If you're in, you know, medicine or law enforcement or, or, or retail, those people often have to push rest to evenings and to weekends. But the people who are really good at it, who have the, the longest, most prosperous careers, are the ones who take it really seriously. You know, for, for them... Um, rest is sacred. You know, this often, I mean, for plenty of people, that gets expressed in terms of, you know, of observing a Sabbath. But for others, it's about not answering the phone on the weekends, you know, sort of putting the work away, not looking at email, and filling your time with other things that are going to be um, equally challenging, that are going to be restorative as opposed to merely passive. And I think that sort of between those two sets of practices, the daily ones and the ones that involve nights and weekends and the preservation of your own private time for rest, you end sort of you can craft a life that is um, both sort of more creative and productive at the daily level, but also more fulfilling and longer lasting. Mm. Lots of the people I write about in the book, you know, sort of do their are active into their 80s or their 90s. So there seems to be something about this that not only you know jump starts your jump starts your sort of uh, your professional career, but also uh, helps you have a longer career. Yeah. If I asked you the one thing, Alex, that would make the biggest difference, uh, what's one thing I could do tomorrow or today um, that would just immediately start to create benefit? You know, probably the um, – I, I, will, I will go out on a limb and, and say that um, the, mo- the thing most of us can do that is uh, uh, beneficial is um, go for a walk in the middle of the day. You know, it doesn't even have to be very long. It can be, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. But the combination of 
you know, of light exercise and sort of mental diversion and just being in a slight, you know, being in, being in a different place, even if you're just walking around, yeah. you know, on, uh, sort of inside your own building, um, can, be, can provide a psychological charge and a mental charge, particularly at that time of the day after lunch when you're starting to, you know, <laughs> get a little sleepy, you're starting to look forward to the end of the day. So, you know, I think that, the, you know, that walking turns out to be something that is um, both physically good for us, but also psychologically and creatively beneficial. Oh, love that idea. Love it. Good stuff. Um, and we appreciate the interview, Alex. Thank you for your time. Man, nobody loves a, a walk more than me. I tell you, it's raining today, though. Come on. Hey, uh, up next, we're going to continue this journey. That, by the way, was Alex Pang, who's the founder of Restful Company. The book is is titled Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. Uh, and uh, take a walk once in a while. Up next, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, Jeffrey, are you a golfer? I have golfed twice. Okay, so in my entire life, so and you I've done are surprise, not a golfer. The people that have known that I've o- have only golfed twice have been quite impressed with my skills. Oh, is that what they told you? Yeah, I don't know if that was just to make me feel yeah, better. They were playing, yeah. and once was in front of my boss, so uh, that was, wasn't nerve wracking. Was money being exchanged? No, no. Yeah. Okay, so there is a there's a, a really interesting story um, about the the what is now known as the world's longest. Golf course. Really? Actually, no, no, no. It's not even a course. It's a hole. One hole, 80 days to complete the hole. What? 14,000 par. You're kidding. No. 1,200 miles. Wow. And people actually do it. Happy Gilmore could probably do it in like 5,000 par. No. Really? It's a lot of travel. Okay. It's 1,200 miles. Oh it is 2,023,000 yards. Okay. So this begs uh, – so why? Well, it's sport. It's hmm. golf. And so we will be posting a video of somebody who um, who who made it happen. But it you, you, you really just keep going Sounds and going like- – Sounds going. less like golf or sport and more like a good way to burn vacation days. Yeah, yeah. Well, you pretty much would have to be unemployed to do this. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, the <clears throat> or, yeah. yeah or the president. Or working as the president <laughs> of the United States to get this much golf in. But um, it really – you go through swamps. You go through – it's in – by the way, you start – you tee off in western Mongolia. Yeah. And then the you have a mapped route that goes through swamps, rivers, deserts. And the key is if you could actually do it in just with one ball, that would be fantastic. But you probably go through hundreds of balls trying to, you know. I thought you have to play it where it lies. Well, yeah, but you got to find it. So bring your scuba deer or scuba scuba gear. Yeah, if you have a swimming deer that can do scuba, <laughs> bring it, bring it. But then you have that. You also have to pull a cart, right? Because you have to. You have to have your gear with you because you're, you're going to have to sleep for 80 nights. This isn't a fast hole. This sounds like the worst 
just the worst. Well, it depends how you look at it. I look at it as, boy, that would kind of be restful. Hmm. Right? Compared to like driving and having to work. This is just walking. At that point, why don't you just rent an RV and spend the three months with your family on the road? That would be fun. Yeah, once you do the dog leg through Afghanistan, as Terry brought up, hmm. it, it's a whole different game. And, okay. and by the way, I would bring a semi-automatic weapon for that hole, that so part of the hole. I've got something that's even better. Oh, you're trying to one-up that. Yeah, it's, a, it's another record. Okay. It's not a golf course, but apparently there's a guy in Japan who set a new Guinness World Record for successfully spinning the, the biggest— The dreidel? No, no. Okay. For successfully spinning the biggest hula hoop ever created or ever known to man. Okay, now notice. I went to a sport and you went to hula hoop. This is a sport. Is it? 16 feet, 10 inches. It's an aluminum hoop. So this guy basically had to, once he got it going, and he had to get it going for quite a while, and then he had to run in place to get it to keep going. And it's so heavy that he was he wow. could only do about, you know, six or seven rotations. You should really look it up. It's, it's quite impressive. It's, it's a huge hoop. Yes. Hoop. It's a huge hoop. Yes. And I mean he uh it was it's pretty impressive. I watched it I read it first, but I wasn't as impressed until I watched the video. This guy is amazing. He's known as Hoopman Yuya. Hoopman. Hoopman. Hoop hoop. And uh, he's quite a character. Well, you need to look it up. That I'm watching is, it. I'm watching it. That's and so much better because it only takes a fraction of the time to, as it as the golf course would take. Yeah, but the funny thing about the video that I'm watching is it actually looks like he's like a trapped beaver in a beaver <laughs> trap. He does look very <laughs> exhausted after the six or seven rotations. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. going to go with the golf. Come on. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love a huge hula hoop. Oh, come on. Sorry. Anyway, see, folks, giving you the the options to find rest. You can either go on a 14,000 par golf hole in Mongolia or you get a hula hoop that just beats the crud out of you. Do the hula hoop. You'll be gone for like 30 seconds versus 90 days it, and you won't have to call in sick or take any vacation leave. Yeah, it really looks like he's just fallen through a trampoline and he can't get out. <laughs> That's what it looks like. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be talking more about the pity party, how to not just become a person that loves self-pity. Interesting stuff straight ahead. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, You know, we've been talking about getting past self-pity, and we've been revisiting an interview I did a few months ago with Amy Morin, who's a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and a a college psychology instructor. She also wrote an article um, that uh, where she said mental mentally strong people reserve their resources for productive activities instead of self-pity. We don't need to have the pity party, she's teaching us. I asked her in the interview uh, what she meant by that. 
uh, you know, I've never met anybody who says I sat on the couch for four days and didn't get dressed and didn't shower, but then I felt much better by day five. I don't know what <laughs> it know, was, but I had really, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I ate cereal for six like weeks. And so to figure out, okay, what's the best use of my time and my energy? You only have so much time and you only have so much energy. And the, the more time that you spend wallowing is the less time that you have to try to improve your situation. And so rather than staying stuck focused on the problem to be able to say, well, what, do I, what can I do that's productive? How do I look towards a solution to try to make things a little bit better? That's great. I mean, really, if you've got, you know, certain only a certain amount of energy and resources anyway, spend them wisely. Don't just exactly. don't just double down on the pity party. You also talk about practicing gratitude. How do, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, I, I always hear that and that's a great idea. Get a gratitude journal. That's great. But I, it's hard to do, you know, when you're downing donuts and you're and you're watching your 14th season of a your favorite Netflix binge. Right, and so you know, sometimes you have to be um, very purposeful in your attempt to look for what what do I have to be grateful today. And it doesn't have to be big things. It can be, you know, I saw the sunshine today, or gee, I can turn on my faucet and I have clean water that comes out of it. That's yeah. pretty amazing or clean air to breathe, whatever it might be, but to be able to just say, okay, what's three things today I can be grateful for? And it might just be things that you normally take for granted, or maybe it's a kind word somebody said to you, whatever it might be, but just to acknowledge those things. And while some people say, yeah, I keep a gratitude journal, journaling's not for everybody. Some people have a bulletin board, or they write it down and put it in a jar. Other people just make a mental note of it, or they talk about it to somebody else. Whatever it might be, just to make that a habit in your life, because... Gratitude is really the antidote for self-pity. You can't feel both self-pity and gratitude at the same time. No, I love that. And it gives you something to do again. I mean, if you're focusing your eyes and your mind on uh, on the good stuff of life, it's hard to – I mean, sometimes that's just why a baby or, um, you know, your favorite television show could kind of get you out of a funk just because it makes your mind go somewhere healthier. Right, and sometimes that's it. You just need to – have that distraction, something to take you off dwelling and ruminating on how horrible your life is. That's it, too, I guess, is one of the keys uh, you talk about is you, you almost have to get out of yourself and serve other people. Otherwise, the pity might keep you in the party. Uh, you, you suggest we help or serve others. Yeah, I'm yet to meet anybody who goes and serves a meal at a soup kitchen and then says, boy, you know, I feel really sorry for myself. Yeah. <laughs> if you had the wherewithal to get yourself there and you can and you can serve others, it usually helps you switch your focus to know, okay, I have something to contribute to the rest of the world. Even though my circumstances are bad, it doesn't mean I'm useless or worthless. I can still give to other people. And then just having that reason to get up and get out of bed every day can, can make a huge difference. Yeah, just the service. I guess it's... Um... It's such a natural fix, isn't it? If it's kind of, I either need to point my arrows in or my arrows out, and arrows in seems like eventually it's going to be pretty self-destructive. Um, I need to go yeah. out and, and help others, like Cupid kind of does. You also suggest that healthier people refuse to complain about it. Uh, what do you mean by that? And why does it matter if I do complain about it? You know, a lot of people seem to have this notion that venting is really helpful. So if I call everybody I know and tell them how bad my life is, I'll feel better. But when you take a step back and you think about it, like, why would you feel better? The more you talk about something, the more you're thinking about it, and the more it gets your, all your feelings get fueled by talking about it. 
And it's usually not helpful. If you go to somebody for genuine advice, a trusted friend, that's one thing. But when you're just complaining and you want people to know how bad your life is, it's not helpful for a few reasons. You know, first of all, self-pity is not a particularly attractive characteristic. Most people don't choose their friends based on who feels sorry for themselves. And also, you know, there's not a contest. Sometimes people seem to think, if I can tell you how horrible my life is, it's like there's a prize. Yeah. Really, there isn't any. You don't win anything for having the worst stuff to deal with. Yeah. If you win a pity party, I mean, and then I guess you're just the bigger loser. Great. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's nothing good that comes out of winning it. So. <laughs> it's true. It's And there's something, too, about saying it that makes it seem more real. Right. So the minute I'm arguing for all of my messed up traits, they just become more real. Right. Mm. Man, we're pathetic. <laughs> Aren't we, Amy? We just keep we just do it kind of naturally, I guess, because maybe there's a little catharsis that we benefit from by doing it. But in the end, we kind of solidify bigger problems for ourselves. Right. And, you know, there's benefit in being heard. I'll have a lot of people that come into my therapy office and they say, yeah, I want to change my life. But by about week four, it becomes clear they just want to come in every week and tell me all the bad things that happened yeah. to them in the past seven days. While it can be helpful to know that somebody's genuinely listening to you, on the other hand, if you're not going to then do anything about it, yeah. talking about it alone isn't isn't going to solve your problems or change your life. It's funny, but it's good for business, isn't it, Amy? It just yes. they just keep coming, <laughs> right? It's and it's sad because you want to help them and you know turn their feelings into action. The last thing um, that you just suggest is we maintain a, an optimistic outlook. And we go actively go build our mental strength. We've got about a minute left. Talk to us just about the about that. Why why is the mental side of this so important to us? You know, because again, if you have a pessimistic outlook on everything, it really influences how you behave. You won't go out and, and make your life into the sort of life that you want to live. If you you'll be self defeated before you even walk out the door. So if you want to be stronger, you have to do two things. The first one is you have to develop healthy habits. But then the other thing is you also have to give up those bad habits like self-pity that drag you down and hold you back. Absolutely. And that, again, was uh, Amy Morin, who is a psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, uh, teaching us about the importance of watching out for the pity party. It's too easy in our lives to just fall into that void where you uh, everything's bad, everything's sad, your life is horrible, and you're a victim of everything. Again, it doesn't mean there aren't real victims, and it doesn't mean there aren't real times where you should be down. The problem is being down and acting down and thinking down just keeps you down. And at some point, we as humans need to, to probably reach a little deeper and, and find another way out. Eckhart Tolle has a great quote that says, Discontent, blaming, complaining, self and self-pity cannot serve as a foundation for a good future. No matter how much effort you make, you're not going to whine, blame, complain, or self-pity yourself out of a out of a problem. It's just it's not the way out. It's actually the way in deeper. If you remember, we've talked on the show about so many other things like rumination. That's kind of the the negative thinking that we do when we've been hurt or harmed. It just drives us into more. Um, uh, negative thought. Remember, thought leads to feelings. Feelings leads to behavior and action, and action leads to what you're becoming. So if you keep fostering it in self-pity or in complaining or in blaming others, 
to me, you're just in a mind trap, and that mind trap will eventually lead you to more negative life, more negative behavior, more negative everything. Just, you know, my take on it. Who knows? But uh, doing what we can to end the pity parties of the world. We will continue the journey, folks. Remember, the goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 